football game, you'll know that they're probably at the store getting you a gift. So uh, Valentine's Day is one of those hallmark holidays. It's one of those things where, unfortunately, the meaning of love has been so redefined and twisted and sometimes just completely off kilter altogether. And so I wanted to preach a message that kind of went along with the day, also tied in with our series. This will be the last message in our family and marriage series. And my message today, you can, you can sing it out in the Tina Turner voice. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? From 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. I'm not going to read that entire portion today just for sake of time, but we are going to cover all of those verses. So you can remain seated, and we're just going to go down through those verses today and try to bring some, some points out to you as we go. But I want to start out by reading to you from a gentleman named Wayne Hudson. Wayne Hudson wrote a book called A Tear Has to Fall. And in that book, he says this, When someone says, I don't love you anymore, it shakes you to your very core. He says, it caused me to ponder the true meaning of love as never before. After many years, I arrived at only one definition that makes any sense. Since God is love, we must compare our love to Him. We come up short if we define it any other way. He says this, for you, for you see, in the final analysis, love is a commitment with a beginning and no end. Christ chose to love us, and He has never stopped. He never will. We should be very careful with a word like love. Are you willing to make that kind of commitment? I would add to that quote this thought. So many people today struggle to receive God's love. They take an analysis of their life and they say, based on who I am and the things that I have done, there is no way that God could love me. He may love others, but He cannot love me. Based on the quote that we read, I just want to throw this little side note out at you. God's love for you never had a beginning. If God is infinite and eternal, and He's always been, and He's omniscient, all-knowing, then His love never had a a beginning. His love for you didn't begin when you were born, because He's known you from the foundations of the very world. So think about that for a moment. When you question whether God could love you, how can He not? Based on His nature and character. Not that we are lovable in and of ourselves, but because of who God is, God is love. He can and certainly does love you today. But when we talk about love, it's one of those words that just become another buzzword, uh, another key word, and it's lost a lot of its meaning, a lot of its emphasis. Uh, Society thinks that love is simply a feeling, and they certainly do lots of things to gratify the flesh and get that void for a season met. A lot of people think that love is just an emotional response, and that's why it changes so frequently. We feel emotionally pulled towards this person or that person or this thing or that thing. And then when our emotions wane, our love is gone. Is love just an emotion? If it is, like I said, it will fluctuate and change quite often. If you ask children, young children, if they were still in here and we asked them, what do they think is love? They certainly would have interesting perspectives. Uh, uh, That question was asked to four to eight-year-olds. Here's some of the responses. What does love mean? Here's what four to eight-year-olds said. 
Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Another child said that love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. Brian, is that what happened to you? I, was, I wasn't going to go there, but I had to ask about that Titan shirt three weeks in a row now. One more. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening the presents and just listen. I thought that was a good answer. But again, the title of the message, what's love got to do with it? We need to know what we're talking about here, biblically speaking. Is love just an emotion? Is it just a feeling? Is it primarily sexual in nature, like our culture would certainly say it is? Did the kids have it right? Is it all of those funny little innocent things that kids think love is? Or, or do we express it on just certain times of the year, like on Valentine's Day when we get flowers and chocolates or do something nice? Is it just an occasional thing that we express in big ways? Or is it bigger than all of that? Is it bigger than just a nice gift or sentimental words or even sexual intimacy? I believe it's most certainly bigger than all of that. So what is love ultimately? If we're going to find out, we need to go to the source of truth, the Word of God, and to the source Himself, the God of the universe, to find out what His opinion, what His definition of love is. So I'm going to give you, I know the normal Baptist sermon is three points in a poem, but I'm going to give you five today, and I'll try to move through these quickly. Number one, we'll see the source of love. Number one, the source of love. Verse 7 of uh, 1st John says beloved let us love one another for love is from God and then in verse 8 it goes on to say that God is love so in these two verses we see that love is from God and love is and God is love and matter of fact when we see the word love in our English Bibles it's difficult to know exactly what type of love is being described because love in the Greek has many different terms depending on what type of love the context is pointing to. But when we talk about this kind of love, a love that finds its origin with God, it was a word that was so unique that the Greeks didn't have this word. It was literally Christians that invented the word agape to explain this supernatural love of God. A love that is unmerited and undeserved, just like the grace that God gives us. It's a love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's a love that doesn't just love people that love us back. It's a love that tells us to love our enemies and forgive those that wrong us. It's a kind of love that goes deeper than anything we can work up in our own human lives. It is a supernatural kind of love because it comes from God who is the very source of love. Who day? Who day? Let's hear it, Baptist. Who day? Amen to that. Romans 5 5 says this Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love. Do you see that? Romans 5 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's God's love in us, and anything that comes out of us with agape love is only because of what is already in us through the Holy Spirit. We're simply pouring out what's already been put in us. If you're trying to work up this kind of love this morning, it's never going to happen. You say, there's people that I don't like, and I'm supposed to love them. How? You can't. You're going to have to rely on God to give you that kind of love. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us 
that enables us to do it. Tim Keller, who is a popular preacher and writer, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I want to read this. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. I've quoted it many times. Listen to what he says. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. One of the biggest problems in the world today is that we have disconnected love and truth. If you speak the Word of God in love and share the biblical truths about what is sin and who God is, you will be labeled a hypocrite, you will be labeled hateful and a bigot, but you cannot love people without standing on the truth, but you can't just hammer people with the truth and not love them. The two have to go together. Many times the church has been its own worst enemy because we either compromise doctrine and say, well, God just loves everything and everybody and anything you want to do is good with Him. He's okay with it. And then we toss out truth. Or we're so rigid and firm doctrinally on everything, which is not always a bad thing, but the tact and the way that we present it comes off as so uncold and unkind and unloving that people want nothing to do with us. Listen, you can stand on a street corner and with a sign that says turn or burn, and that may be true biblically, but that presentation, I would venture to say, is not going to win a whole lot of people to Christ. It's just not. So we've got to balance the truth and the love together. And when that happens, you will see amazing things happen. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. But the truth has got to be involved in that love. It's not enough to just love people without sharing the good news. And it's not enough to just share the good news without loving them along the way. Psalm 85.10. This is a, a different verse, a different version, I should say, than I usually use. It's, it's a translation you may have never heard of called Young's Literal Translation. But I, I want you to see that because it, it tries its best to bring out the English with the Hebrew here. And I think it's a fantastic translation for this verse. It says, Kindness and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed. We have to have both, church. We have to stand firmly on the Word of God and never compromise. But we have to show love to people who are different than us. Love to people that come in here with liquor on their breath or tattoos and piercings all over their bodies. Or people that have been promiscuous. Or people that are off wandering in sin. We have to love them and share the truth with them. And we have to invest in them. Absolutely. Absolutely we must. God is love. Even the world shouts that today. Well, God is love. Because they've discarded truth and just created a God that loves everything. But the Bible doesn't just say that God is love. The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says that God is righteous. The Bible says that God has no darkness in Him, and He is only light. So we can't just pick out the one that we like and can twist and make it into the image that we want God to be in. We've got to take the whole counsel of God and get a full picture of who He is. The source of love is God. And if we want to live lives that portray the love of God, we have got to allow the Spirit to live through us we can't produce that agape love by ourselves. Number two, there's a source of love and there is a sacrifice 
of love. As we go down in verse John to verses 9 and 10, listen to what John writes there. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Man, this is the, the best news in the world. That God sent His only Son into the world. Why? So that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, God's love was made manifest. That's what we read in verse 9. In this, love, in this the love of God was made manifest. That literally means His love was put on display. 2,000 years ago, on the cross of Calvary, His love was displayed for everyone to see. In that one great act, humanity has been forever changed and is still being changed. That blood that we sang about this morning, the blood that He shed over in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, has never lost its power, as that song that we used to sing goes. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. My friend, if you're here today and you are lost, the way to be found is to turn from your sin and not try harder, not work harder, but to have your sins washed away by the crimson blood of Jesus Christ that makes you whiter as snow. That is the plan that God had, and He carried that plan out perfectly. And not only did He die for our sins, He rose again three days later and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And on a day that He has appointed, He will return for His church and His children. And my prayer, and this church's prayer, is that you are ready whenever that time comes to go to be with the Lord. We've talked about it much this morning. A dear brother in Christ early this morning went on to be with the Lord. Brother Tom Franklin passed away. And our hearts grieve for him. But I know with many conversations and, and time spent with Tom that he was ready. He loves his family and loved his family deeply. But he knew where he was headed. And through all the infirmities and trials that he went for, he was ready to go home. And this morning, his faith became sight. And I pray that we're ready. For we don't know the day or the hour when the Lord will return or when He calls for us. That's why you must be ready now. You must be prepared. And God did everything so that things were ready for us. There was a great sacrifice that was made. His, his love was made manifest on Calvary's cross. He sent His only Son, the Bible says. Why in that verse? That we might live through Him. Listen to what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this, so what is that? This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. He came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to seek and save that which was lost. He's not willing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. He says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That's the source. 
And it led to an action. An action that can change your life and change your eternity. Do you know this Jesus? Have you experienced the sacrifice for your sin that He did for us? John Stott, listen, I try to recommend books every once in a while that I believe every Christian ought to read, even if they're not from Baptist backgrounds. And to me, anything that John Stott wrote is worth reading, but particularly a book called The Cross of Christ should be required reading for every Christian, in my opinion. Let me give you a quote from John Stott from that book, The Cross of Christ. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. So anytime we sin, it ultimately boils down to the fact that we are putting ourselves in a place of God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That substitutionary work of Christ. He goes on to say, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices Himself for man and puts Himself where only man deserves to be. Jesus didn't deserve to go to that cross. He says, I lay down my life willingly. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. You know who did deserve to be on that cross? Me and you. We did. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin yet He bore the sin of the world for us. In that verse that we read, it says that He became the propitiation for our sin. That's a big word that we probably don't ever use in day-to-day language. But that word propitiation literally means the mercy seat. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know what happened on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the holiest of holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and God would see that blood and He would show mercy and pardon on the people for their sins. God's anger was taken away. Listen, God is love. But one of the things, there's a lot of things missing from churches today and from preaching today. A lot of pastors and a lot of churches won't talk about sin They won't talk about hell. They won't talk about repentance. They won't talk about judgment. And you know another thing they won't talk about? The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Because God is love and He loves everybody and loves everything and you're good. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that that's the truth. Because it's not. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on you. Until you know Jesus, God loves you enough to provide a way of escape. But that in no way, shape, or form means that He is winking at your sin. That He is ignoring your sin. That you are not condemned already because you've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And if you die lost, you will experience the wrath of God. And the ultimate pouring out of the wrath of God is to see sinners cast into a place called the lake of fire. It wasn't created for that purpose. It was created for the devil and his angels. But because man transgressed, hell enlarged his borders and continues to do so. And my friend, the seriousness today is if you die lost, that will be your home for eternity. But you don't have to. On the cross, God poured out His wrath. The wrath that you and I deserved. The punishment for sin, He poured it out on His own Son who became the propitiation, the mercy seat. God punished His Son for you and I. What a sacrifice of love that He did. You stand here today and say, could God love me? Does God love me? He wounded and bruised and crushed His own Son 
Because He loved you enough that He didn't want you to die in your sins. If that's not a testimony to the love of God for you, I don't know what else will convince you. There was a source of love, a sacrifice of love. Number three, there's the scope of love. Verses 11-16. through 16. Again, John goes back to this thought. Beloved, if God loved us, we ought to love one another. And then he goes on to the fact that not only as believers have we been saved and forgiven, but the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. And we now have a relationship with God. Jesus Christ takes sinners who are separated, because sin separates us from a holy God, and through His death, burial, and resurrection, He reconciles us back to God. The relationship that was destroyed by sin is now restored because of Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our advocate. And He brings us back together. He is the bridge that we couldn't cross to get back to God. It says in verse 13, John writes these words, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We said this earlier, guys, and it's so important that you get this. Christianity is more than simply believing a set of rules and doctrines. Obviously, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's critical that you understand biblical truth. It's critical that you understand the God of this book and not just the God that you've invented or God that somebody else has told you about. Don't just take somebody's Word for granted that they know what they're talking about, including me. Get in the book yourself. Study to show yourself approved. Rightly divide the word of truth. You have got to feed yourself. You can't just always depend on somebody else to spoon feed you. I'm called to preach and teach the word of God and I try to do that faithfully. But I can't feed you enough in an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday. There's a lot of other hours in the week and you've got to eat. And you've got to feed yourself. Get in the book and find out for yourself. It's more than just these beliefs though. It goes deeper than just memorizing facts in our minds so that we can repeat Sunday school stories and certain doctrines and dogmas. You can't just repeat those things out of your mind. It's more than just stopping sinful practices. It amazes me, no matter how much the Gospel is preached, man still goes back to this idea that somehow we have got to be a part of the salvation process. Like, God, you died for my sin, and you shed your blood, and you did all this, but I know that I still have to do something. i got to clean myself up first, and i got to try a little harder, and i got to be more faithful to go to church, and if I do all these things, then I'm saved. i got to get baptized, and then I'm saved. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. we got to get us out of the way we got to get us. The only thing, I think it may have been John Newton or John Owen that said the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we offer is the sin that made it necessary. God did everything else. Everything necessary was done by Him. And as a result of that, when we're reconciled to Christ through the saving blood of Jesus, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, heaven is our home. But... There's a lot of life in between that, hopefully. From the day you got saved to the day you got home, hopefully there's a whole lot of life in between. And God made you a new creature in Christ so that during that period from here to here, you get to live your life for the glory of God. 
It's not enough to just say, well, I'm saved and I'm going to sit back now and wait for the Lord to fly me away to glory. You are a new creature in Christ. You have a purpose and a calling. You have a gift and a responsibility. What are you doing for Jesus in the respite between your salvation and your glorification? What are you doing for Him? Not to earn your salvation, not to earn His love, but because you're a new creature in Christ. Look, you're going out, hopefully you guys, at least the guys will, go out tomorrow and get Valentine's gift. If you have somebody special, I know that sometimes Valentine's Day is a hard day for people. You don't have someone, I get that. But if you do, you're going out to buy that gift because you love them. You're simply doing it to say, here, I want to give this to you, I'm thinking of you today. We should serve God simply because He lives in us and we love Him. There shouldn't be any other motivation needed. If He lives in us and we understand that He loves us and as a result we love Him, then serving Him should not be a burden. It shouldn't be a chore. It should be a joy. We get to be a part of the work of the kingdom. God doesn't need us. He allows us. We, don't have, we say it all the time, we don't have to go to church. We get to go to church. We want to go to church, hopefully. And we get to be a part of His work. What an amazing thing. And that is a result of a changed life. A changed life. Let me read to you a couple of quotes from... The first one is for an early Greek philosopher. So this is a historian, rather, I'm sorry. Um, So this is not a Christian quote, per se, but this is the perspective of someone that lived around the time of the church's early beginnings. His name was Lucian. He lived in AD 150. Listen to how he describes the Christian church in that time. He says, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, who is referring to as Jesus in that term, has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. An early church father named Tertullian, he said this, It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, look how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Would people talk about our church that way? Would people talk about us that way? If we're honest. It's a supernatural kind of love. We can't work harder for it, but we can surrender ourselves deeper to Christ so that His love can work through us. I'm sure you found it to be true, but the closer you get to Jesus, the more that you see His life and work happening in you. When you're distant and cold towards God, you can't work those things up. You can try. You can fake it. You can come. Maybe some of you are in here this morning and you're faking it. You're faking worship. You're faking being okay and you're not. You're faking that you're not struggling with some sin and you are. And faking it is exhausting. I would, I'm going to be honest with you. I would, if I'm going to be lost, I would rather be lost and just be an atheist than to be lost and try to be religious. Because that's exhausting. At least when I didn't know God, I could go out and live my world, live my life, and I didn't have to explain myself to anybody. This is who I am. If you don't like it, get out of here. But when you're lost and then you try to come in here and pretend, that's exhausting. It's just exhausting. And I don't know why you'd want to pretend when you can have the real thing. I don't know why you want to fake being okay when you can come to the source of peace and life 
and have the real thing. That doesn't mean you won't have trials and tribulations and struggles and fears and anxieties. We all have those things this side of glory. But there's someone that walks with us through those times. There's someone that gives us hope. I'm sure the Franklin family are grieving and grieving deeply right now. But they don't grieve as ones that have no hope. Because they know where Tom is. They know who he believed in. And in all of the pain of not having him here anymore, there is a hope that on that great resurrection day, they will see their loved one again. And that is the hope that all of us in Christ have. But without him, you don't have that hope. Why would you pretend when you can have the real thing? Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the standard. You are to love one another. And we can only do that by letting God live through us. Number four, the surety of love. I want you to see the, the assurance. A lot of people say, well, I, I understand it and I even believe what you're saying, but man, I struggle with the assurance of it. There's times when I'm just still not sure, Pastor. I still wonder if God loves me, if God has saved me. Look at what John writes in verses 17 and 18. He says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence... For the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me say this again. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of judgment. In all of this message about love, I want to be perfectly clear that there is a day of judgment that's coming. Acts 17.31 is one verse that I'll give you. It says there, Because He has fixed a day on which He, who are we talking about here? Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Jesus is alive. If He was still behind that stone in that tomb, we would be wasting our time right now and you wouldn't have to worry about a judgment day. But because three days later that stone was rolled away and my Jesus walked out of there alive, everything changed. Like, all this is not a story. This is history and prophecy. It's what's happened and what's going to happen. And the proof this morning that I stand up here while people laugh and mock and ridicule what we're doing is because that empty tomb. Because that man walked out of that tomb, he is the Son of God just like he claimed he was. And all his promises are sure. And I'm willing to stake my life on it. And I have. And here's the question we have got to ask ourselves this morning. When we stand before him, unbeliever for judgment, believer for your works. But either way, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment, but there will be a judgment for every single human being. When we stand as believers before the Lord Jesus Christ, will our lives match our lips? Did we give lip service? These men honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or did our lives really match up what we say we believe? When we sing the songs, when we pray the prayers, when we speak about Jesus, do people look at our lives and say, well, man, oh man, I know Him and 
He ain't nothing like what he's saying he is. We all fall short. Again, I'm not standing up here and saying you always get it right. When you do own it, confess it, repent of it. Don't make excuses for it. But is the pattern of your life godliness and holiness? Or is it worldliness and secularism? It can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. And Jesus said there is a day of judgment and not everybody that claims to know me will know me. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Romans 2, 13, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law that are declared righteous. Again, we're not teaching a works-based salvation. There is a change that takes place in your life. If your life has not been changed, you're not saved. Period. I wish I could, I wish I could t- sugarcoat it and water it down for you to make you feel better, but I'm not going to. The reality is, you have got to examine yourself by this book and see if there's really been a change. And if there hasn't, quit playing games. Get on your face before a holy God. Confess your sins and cry out to Him and get right with Him. You can get right with Him. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts, the Bible says. We're not saved by our works, but love will change everything. And God is love, and He showed that love by sending His Son. And when you meet that Son, your life will be changed. It has to be. It has to be. There is an assurance that comes. And finally, we'll close with this. There is a scrutiny that comes from love. There is a scrutiny that comes. Look at the final verses that we talked about this morning, verses 19 to 21 of 1 John. We love because He first loved us. If, now, here's, here is where there's a scrutiny. Here is where some examination. Perfect love casts out all fear. If, if we have been born again, if there is evidence in our life that we're saved, we don't need to fear final judgment in condemnation. Christ has paid the price. He has bore our sins. We no longer have to fear death and standing before God in judgment to be condemned. We will still stand before God to be judged for our works. And for some of us, your works are going to be burned up because you didn't have any. What little bit you have will amount to nothing. But he says if you have evidence in your life that God's love is manifest in you, you don't need to fear a final judgment. Jesus was the propitiation. He took God's wrath for you. So why would you fear? But you need to make sure. And he gives us these final little points to examine ourselves by. We love because He first loved us. Is our love supernatural? Did it have its origin in the source? Even lost people can love folks. They can go out and do lots of good things. Sometimes, sometimes the world does a better job of caring for people than the church does. But they don't have a supernatural love. Their object of their affection is not Christ. It's a love for man, a love for humanity, a love for self. But do you have a love that stems and originates and flows from God? He says in verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, again, I'm going to go out on a rope here and say that sometimes people that treat each other the worst 
our fellow Christians. It's true. And I'll, tell, I'll go this, and I mean, you all have probably experienced this to some degree. I've even seen a funny meme go around. When you leave a church, you don't have to hate that church and those people. You don't have to. We're not in gangs. Like, it's not the Bloods and the Crips, and we're on a different team now. You know? I mean, seriously. I don't understand why it is, but it's like, we're, we're all, I hope, we're all working for the same goal, to see souls saved and lives changed. But church has become like a corporation, and it's like, you know, we're trying to peddle the best product, and we want our church to be the biggest and the best, and all this stuff. And it's like, if one person leaves and goes somewhere else, they're almost shunned. Like, people that they used to love and do life with, they don't even talk to them anymore. And that's sad. We should love one another, regardless of what building we're worshiping in. Right? We're going to worship in the same heaven. We ought to be able to get along down here. I mean, it just makes no sense. But I'll ask you this. As you examine yourself, do I love like God? Do I love unconditionally? Loving our enemies is one thing. But do I love the brethren? Again, I hear so many people today say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't believe in organized religion anymore. I just, I just do my own thing at home. It's hard to love your brothers and sisters if you're never around them. It's really hard to serve one another if you don't ever come out and be around people. I'll go another step farther. I've never pastored a big church. <clears throat> in the big scheme of things, a thousand or more is a big church. So anything under a thousand in most church circles is considered small. So every church I've ever pastored and been a part of is small. And it amazes me that even in the smallest of churches... Like, <clears throat> I've been in churches and preached before I pastored in churches with five people. But even in small churches, people say, I don't know who that is. If you bring somebody's name up, they'll be like, I don't know who that is. And I'm not talking about somebody who's just come a time or two. Like, we may have been going to church together for two years. And you're like, did you know so-and-so was sick? And they're like, I don't know who that is. That's a problem. That's a problem. Like, I get it. I get it because some people are introverted and it's scary for you to even think about walking up and talking to somebody new. I get it. But it breaks my heart when we worship together each week and we don't even know each other's names after a year or two. There's no possible way you can love somebody if you don't even know who they are. There's no possible way you can serve somebody and meet their needs if you don't even know anything about them. Like if we want to really love each other, we've got to step outside of our comfort zone enough to say, each week I'm going to force myself to go up and have a conversation with somebody new and get to know them. And if we did that, if we loved each other enough to get uncomfortable and start to know each other, there would be so, you would find out so many needs right here in this room, you would never again come to me and say, I don't know what God wants me to do. You'd say, Pastor, can you get me some help? I'm exhausted trying to do all the stuff that I'm trying to do. Because there's so many needs, guys, right here in this room. And I'm not saying we just focus on this room. But we need to care for one another you got to have a balance. we gotta, we got to go, but we got to tend to the needs here too. But we can't meet these needs if we don't even know each other. Do we love like Jesus does? Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. If you, if you answer that today and you say, no, I don't. I'm honest. I'm going to be honest. I don't. Do the same thing that Jesus said the church at Ephesus needed to do. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned, <clears throat> you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember from where you've fallen. So that's the first step. Remember where you used to be or where you want to be. And then, 
repent. Turn around. Turn. Come back. Remember, return, and repeat. Do the works that you used to do. You can have your fire back again, church. So many people say, man, when I was saved, I was on fire, and now I'm not like that anymore. Why not? We've settled into it. We say, well, that's how it used to be, and now I just kind of take it as it goes. Why? We ought to let our light shine brightly. And all of us grow dim from time to time, but why are you going to stay there? If you want to love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and see a difference made through your life, do what's necessary to get back to where you need to be. You may physically not be able to do the things you used to be able to do, but that doesn't mean that your fervor and your desire and your prayer life and your study life and all those things can't still be as strong as they ever were. They can be. God, there's no retirement plan in the kingdom of God. You may have gotten older and a little more gray or maybe nothing at all on top anymore, but that doesn't mean that you're not useful in the kingdom anymore. God still has a purpose for you. I don't care if you're young and still figuring things out. God has a purpose for you. You're not the next generation. You're part of the church now. You're part of the church right now. You don't have to wait to serve. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you signed up to follow Him and serve. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever abides does not love but remains in death. Where are we today, church? We've got to be honest with ourselves. I'm going to invite Brian and Monica to come. And as we do this song of invitation, I hope that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today. I hope that as we've looked at these evidences of love, that you understand what real love is. That you're not settling from some cheap substitute that the world is offering you. That you desire to know Christ in all His love and fullness. And that you want to live a life that shows that love to others. I hope that you look around this room today and you say, I'm going to make it a point to know these people better. God's called me here to serve and labor. And I'm going to know these people so that I can love them deeper and serve them more genuinely. Man, that, that will change the culture of this church. And it will carry outside of these walls. I can promise you that. John started this letter with these words and I'm going to close with them. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Father, help us today to love like you did. But we can't love like you did if we don't know you first. So Lord, for the one here today that's lost, the one watching online that's lost, I pray today that they would understand when we talked about the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the sin that separates them from God, that they realize that that is them right now. But that they can change that. Not by anything that they do, but by everything that you've already done that they can turn from their sins and look to Christ in faith and be saved. And I pray for the believers in this room whose love may have grown cold towards you or towards one another, that you would light us on fire again, Lord, that you would stir up within us a desire to live holy and righteous lives, to love like Jesus, so that we can go out into this world and even inside these walls and help people to have a different life and to have hope again. Lord, help us today to love like you. And during this invitation, do the work that only you can. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, all to you.